Welcome to the final show of 2022 here on the Montpelier Happy Hour on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. So happy you can be joining us. If um, you're listening in on uh, the 30th, we are pre-recording this show, but we are with Stephanie Yu, the who in the new year will be the executive director of the Public Assets Institute. So glad you can be with us, Stephanie. Thanks for having me. And Emily Kornheiser, one of three reps from the town of Brattleboro, regular contributor. So glad you can be here too. And in the new year, she'll be back in the state house. <laughs> I will indeed. Looking forward to it. Um, so Stephanie is with us today to talk about the annual 2022 State of Working uh, Vermont report, which the Public Assets Institute puts out every year. And um, I think it is summed up in the, the question of, or not the question, but the statement in the report of Vermont needs a new normal. Um is that is that a fair summary of the report, Stephanie? That's, that's really the main theme. That's right. Is sort of recognizing what the what the pandemic has taught us, but what we knew before the pandemic too. That that really we don't want to go back to the the status quo before the pandemic because there were a lot of challenges before that point. I think that's the main theme of the Montpelier Happy Hour for the last three years too. So <laughs> I like this synergy, and I have to tell you, Steph, when we recorded last week's episode. Olga was like a kid in a candy store thinking about having the report come out. And like, it is her very favorite report of the year. She looks forward to it with bated breath. So this is maybe even her favorite episode of the year because we get to talk about it. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. We spent a lot of time on it. So I'm glad to hear it. it's, it's time well spent. It is. Well, one thing I love about the report, you know, as someone who's in media, I'm constantly thinking about, you know, how do we take big concepts that maybe aren't part of everyone's daily lives and communicate them in a way that people can understand how they're being impacted by these concepts or these policies or this information. And I just think the report does it so well. And I really appreciate that. Well, thank you. So, you know, Stephanie, there's a lot to pull apart in the the report. It was broken down into a bunch of different buckets uh, there was the big picture, there was home, there was work, um, and there was life, I believe. You got it. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. Gold star. And mm-hmm. for you, as you were putting together the report, what were, were there aha moments or were you like, eh, unfortunately, yeah, that's kind of what we expected? It's It's a good question. I think that, you know, part of this is the pandemic data are so sort of disrupted and messy that we we spent a lot of time trying to make a coherent story out of this because like you say we're trying to kind of put some of these pieces together in a way that where the story can make sense to people and I think um, one of the things that was interesting is we kept going back and forth about what was home what was life what was work because they've gotten so blurry (laughs) in so many ways over these last few years right like these things are all impacting in one another this, the childcare capacity probably has something to do with the number of people who haven't gone back back to work. So, you know, it was really all very messy and tied together. Um, but, but you know, we're really trying to get a sense of of how Vermonters are doing. And part of what we wanted to look at too was recognize the pretty extraordinary government response at both the federal and state level, and the reality that that made a huge difference for people. But it was temporary. 
So sort of watching this kind of, you know, this flow of the, of the support, um, you know, that, that, that it helped a lot of people and that now in the absence of a lot of that government support, people are sort of falling back, you know, through the cracks. So, you know, how can we sort of prevent that from happening and, and what worked really well in the pandemic response that that should be sustained? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of the pieces of information that surprised me the most is how homelessness had increased since 2020, uh, 2020 which yeah. is a sad statistic. It is. And clearly a lot of people's income was disrupted, at least temporarily, if not longer term. Um, you know, we're still employment's not back. Jobs aren't back. And that's that's a slightly different story in Vermont than it is in the rest of the country. Like the rest of the country um, has mostly recovered. And and again, you know, we're, we're looking at the kind of U.S. total. So, so there's different pockets. But Vermont, you know, has been slow to to recover in terms of jobs and employment. And that's um, and the question is why that is. Are those health considerations? Are those some of this child care challenges? Are those, you know, it's probably a mix of all of the above. And that's part of, you know, it has been hard to really sort of piece together. So for those people who haven't come back to the labor force, how are they making it work or are they making it work? And in some cases, I think the homelessness is one indicator that, you know, that people are really struggling and, and had such a, such disruption that now, you know, now the question is, what do we do about it? Mm-hmm. I think it's also, you know, um, recoveries in Vermont are always slower than the rest of the country, yeah. right? Like we know that from all kinds of economic disruptions. And I've also, you know, in the context of that, there's also like, it always takes the future a little bit of time for Vermont to catch up with, um, or takes Vermont a little bit of time to catch up with the future. And so when I think about um, a trend that I think most of the country was already aware of, which is the financialization of real estate markets, um, and how it felt like that really didn't hit Vermont until the pandemic. Um, And so how that so there's sort of the individual economic circumstances that have impacted Vermonters and the ways that we, through the pandemic, used money to solve that problem rather than policy in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have this trend of increased financialization of markets in the face of that economic disruption. And I wonder how much of like, you know, that hit these problem areas of Vermont's already existing housing struggles um, to create a perfect storm. And I'm, you know, yeah. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things you're picking up on there, right, which is that Vermont does tend to have this sort of slow burn phenomenon in terms of the economic. After the Great Recession, our sort of trough was much later than a lot. And so the recovery has been sort of behind. And similarly, when you look at sort of the employment and the jobs, like, you know, the U.S. seems to be ahead a little bit in terms of what happens. But um, but and and one of the things that we do pick up in this home section is sort of looking at housing prices, both both, you know, houses for sale and rent, rental properties um, and really looking at the fact that they were growing ahead of the pandemic. Right. But then a lot. But then there was pretty big spike in that. And how much of that is speculation and how much of that is, you know, we're, we also saw. A, a whole bunch of people moved to Vermont. Like we saw a pretty big, big group, um, you know, net migration, pretty significant mm-hmm. over into 2020, into 2021. So how much of that is sort of real demand for people who really want to move to Vermont too? Mm-hmm. I think there's an element of that too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, 
you know, Emily, you just said something interesting of, you know, solving a problem with money rather than policy, mm-hmm. which we've talked about on the show before. But I'm wondering if there was any specific policies or, or buckets of money that um, you were thinking of when you. Oh, gosh, um, there are a bunch of them. So in the context of housing, it's that we didn't change anything about our housing policies whatsoever or zoning policies or growth policies or homeless services policies or anything. We just, um, you know, and I'm incredibly glad we house people in motels. I don't want to act that I'm not. I'm, I just think we could have done both, you know, chewed gum and walked at the same time. And like I say that knowing that like we were all and still are under like tremendous crisis and pressure. And I think everyone in st- like for the most part, people in state government did like even better than they could have mm-hmm. to serve people. And each of us did like really the very best we could to serve our communities and our neighbors through this. So I don't want to like, I think there's a sports metaphor here that I don't actually know. <laughs> I feel it on the edge of my sentence. <laughs> I think part of it is that that you know I and it's not particular to Vermont. I think it's been true kind of in government, yeah. but, but we can definitely point to sp- specific circumstances in Vermont, which is there's just less capacity for long-term planning. Mm-hmm. And so when the crisis hits, you, you're sort of already doing all you can to kind of keep up with what's going on, yes. and so there's less ability to kind of have that long-term peace in mind. You're just kind of reactive, and and again, I think that's not like you say, it's not to disparage any of the effort or pretty amazing things I think that the state government and the federal government to some extent did mm-hmm. during COVID. But but it sort of it, it illustrated the fact that some of these things are sort of patched together mm-hmm. on an ongoing basis. And so therefore, when more demand is created, it makes it that much harder to kind of have longer term solutions. Mm-hmm. So when you think about that lack of capacity for planning um, and Senator Ballant back before she was Congresswoman elect, Becca Ballant used to always talk about how the state was held together with duct tape and bailing twine. Um, And I really hold on to that one as like an essential truth of how to do our work here. Um, What are the other aspects and impacts that that you see in the report related to that sort of lack of capacity. I think about that a lot in the context of employers having a lot lack of capacity for long-term planning and what the state can do in that case. But I'm curious other places you see that. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the childcare is another good example, I think, where we already knew that the system was stretched. We also knew that people weren't making enough money who work in the sector, and we knew that parents couldn't afford to pay more. We sort of we knew that that childcare was already hanging on by a thread, or you know, and in some cases, just woefully inadequate, right? Um, because the because the whole sort of paradigm didn't work. Um, so I think that's another place where it became very obvious that we needed a longer term solution. And, you know, I think and a lot of good work has been done and there's a pretty good roadmap on what to do about childcare. It does. And this is a case where we need both money and policy. Right. Like the, the solution mm-hmm. is both those things. But I think that's another example. Um, you know, I think. It, it was pretty clear that the the food aid structures are are were stretched pretty thin. And part of it is because there's a, you know, again, there's sort of this patchwork of programs and how can we do it in a coherent way? Um, and I think there, I think there's some potentially some good work being being done to think about how to make these programs more. You know, again, the immediate response in the pandemic was we're going to get people fed one way or another. We're not mm-hmm. necessarily going to spend a lot of time building the perfect structure. But on reflection, it would be great to 
think about what worked well and what are the best dis- distribution mechanisms. And is it, again, is it cash in people's pockets or is it, you know, active distribution? What does it look like? You know, one aspect of the food system and the emergency food system and what happened during the pandemic that um, really shone a light for me on sort of we need to do um, exacerbated, shone a light on whatever um, sort of existing problems is that so much of it and so much of our social service structure is built with volunteer labor. Mm-hmm. And during the pandemic, that was incredibly vulnerable volunteer labor who were not, you know, folks. Um, often older Vermonters who couldn't be in public. And we know that like, you know, in this, as that population is aging, that volunteer capacity is aging too. And so how are we building systems in the state that are more robust and resilient given this volunteer base that is not able to do it? Um, and a new volunteer base not coming online because we are all working so hard and so many hours to pay our bills. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, I also think one thing that was very different during the pandemic compared to other times, and Stephanie, you just said it with the food system, is there was this um, belief, attitude, sense, whatever you want to call it, we're going to get people fed no matter what. We're going to get people housed no matter what. And I think sometimes that is a different way to come at a problem than, well, let's try this, or we don't have enough money, or maybe some of the other things we tell ourselves in other times of our lives. I think that's a really good point. And that's a that's sort of a theme we were trying to pick up in the report of you know, I do think, and it wasn't just, you know, it wasn't just government swinging into action, right? There was a lot of mutual aid happening. There was a lot of communities helping each other. Um, there was a lot of sort of taking matters into your own hands when you saw something that needed to be done. And I think, you know, how can we tap that? I mean, government, you know, government is still the best way to deliver these, you know, services in a systemic way and take care of people. Um, but we want to keep that spirit going and recognize, like you say, that a lot of our programs were sort of, you know, there is this, I think that the overall state budget process tends to be more focused on this is the money we have, so we'll do what we can with what we have, rather than this is the need that we see and this is how we meet that need. Um, so I think that spirit of the pandemic, if we could keep that going um, in kind of in kind of the budget process and and going forward, that would be huge. It would be a different conversation for sure. Definitely. Um, you know, we've we've done a lot of talking about housing, uh, and you touched on it a little bit. But you know, during the pandemic, we saw home prices. I, I think the experience for a lot of people is home prices went through the roof, rents went through the roof. Um, what what did you see in the report? Did did your data support that? What what story did you see? Yeah, there were some interesting things that that were surprising. On on the whole, I think that's right. We saw big jumps in rent and we saw pretty big jumps in housing prices. But again, some of that trend was happening before the pandemic. Mm. Um, certainly driven a little bit more. And we also see a real disparity when you look at rents in the Chittenden County area versus the rest of the state. There's a real difference. There's definitely, well, you know, and a lot of rental property is in, you know, the Northwest. Um, but, but you know, you see those prices really being 
being much higher than sort of the U.S. average, but the statewide average in, in parts of Vermont is not so out of whack with sort of the national averages of rent and even trailing a little bit in terms of the growth over the course of the pandemic, right? But it's really sort of the the Burlington, South Burlington area that's, that's kind of driving those high prices. Um, and then again, with the housing, one of the things that was surprising was that, you know, prices went up in every county and but volume of sales was actually were actually lower in Chittenden, um, which was sort of interesting, even though the prices went up, the volume, not by a huge amount. But the point is, it wasn't sort of this huge spike, even though I, I think it kind of felt that way, because there was sort of probably pent up demand over the course of the uh, pandemic that all probably seemed to be happening at once. You know, I'll also add, you know, I do live in Burlington, and there was a reassessment in Burlington over the pandemic. So I think that also sort of got a lot of attention and people's notice in terms of what it meant for the for home prices mm-hmm. um, lots of moving pieces <laughs> um well i think the home prices too when you you talk about vermont somewhat being at the average of in or in line with u.s mm-hmm. rents um i think that brings us back to wages um and what people can afford to pay and it does seem um you shared with us uh your jobs report um that we'll link to in the show notes where you talk about how um, you compared prices of, of goods and services in Vermont to the rest of the country, pretty much in line, kind of like with rents, but with wages, we were uh, regionally, I think you mean New England, uh, Mm -hmm. we were the second lowest. So it seems like we still have that trend of costs being basically in line with the rest of the country, but our wages still Mm -hmm. not keeping up with that. That's right. And and it's been true for as long as we've been looking at this, right, that that our prices tend to be around the U.S. average, you know, give or take a little bit, but that wages are significantly below the U.S. average, in this case, 83 percent. Right. So if the U.S. is 100, we're at 83 percent. And those are average. So, you know, obviously there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of of wiggle room around that. But that's but that's been a real problem. And we did see, you know, wages have grown. I mean, what we haven't talked about yet is inflation, which has obviously been a big deal over this year. And so, you know, are people better off, even if wages have grown, are they keeping up with inflation? We know that they weren't really keeping up with inflation for the decade before Mm -hmm. pandemic. And even though we did see real wages go up, you know, there were a number of things happening with wages during the pandemic. So I think that first year, a lot of the problem was that a whole bunch of low wage jobs just disappeared. So that it looked like wages went up, but really it was just sort of we were taking the bottom of the pool out, you know, the bottom of the scale out of the pool. Um, but now it, it does look like real wages are going up, but inflation is going up so quickly that it's not really helping. Um, so it's kind of a mixed bag on wages. You know, we are seeing some growth, but as inflation, if inflation stays high, then that's, you know, it doesn't help us that much. And this problem of like being persistently low in the region and persistently low relative to the U.S. average. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, in terms of spending power, despite all this churn, I'm not sure we're much better off. Mm-hmm. So I'm you ready for the, the non-economist question? Before Um I have to admit, I always come back to this this discrepancy between costs and wages in Vermont because there's a part of my brain that just can't wrap itself around it. And it just asks, like, how do we keep our economy going? 
And how are people keeping themselves fed and sheltered? And, and we seem, given the givens, a lot of people are, are making it work. But I don't understand, like, how this can even exist. That is yeah. my, like, moment. <laughs> no, I, I get it. I think it's a good question. I think the answer is that a lot of people are stretched really thin, as Emily was saying. I think a lot of people are stretched really thin. I think people are working more than one job. I think there's sort of, you know, there's a lot of these pieces where. I mean, Olga and I both work more than one job. I guess like, yeah. Yeah. And I think people are stuck in their housing to some extent, right? Mm -hmm. Like I do think for people who have, you know, if there's a fixed income and your house value keeps going up, you can't move because there's nowhere else, you know, even if people are, were looking to downsize, there's this challenge, you know, so of older Vermonters, that could be a factor too. Um, So, you know, I, I think that's, it is a real challenge. Like we're trying to figure out how people are making it work. And I think the answer is a whole lot of everything, right? Right. Sometimes it's shared housing. Sometimes it's less housing than you need. Sometimes it's working multiple jobs. Sometimes it's relying on family for childcare that that might not be ideal, but you're doing it. You know, I think it's a whole and, mix of how we, how we do it. And when we talk about that, making it work. So that includes like not getting the healthcare you need mm-hmm. that will have very huge long-term impacts, right? It's people not going to the dentist. It's people not eating healthy foods. It's about like, people again having unideal childcare which often leads to like you know massive amounts of childhood trauma or um more stressful outcomes at home or you know people struggling in school yeah or even just being behind in school right even if it doesn't go to that extreme it's still yeah yeah, it's not ideal it's not ideal and like it's not like when we talk about not ideal i think sometimes it's like the disconnect for folks who are not stretched that thin. They think that not ideal means like your kid never ever watches TV and like always eats broccoli and like you, you know, go skiing for it. You know, like it's just the what we talk when we're talking about what not ideal, it's like Pretty chronic bad. stress and no health care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess the 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 next place my my brain goes when it's asking these questions um and and i'll just add this other thought that for a lot of us who grew up swimming in this water of making it work you just make it work and it doesn't necessarily occur to you to to think that life operates any other way but on top of that i guess the next place my brain goes is why is this okay for all of us like why are we okay with this um, when it seems right. pretty basic I mean, I, you know, to have costs and wages in alignment. Right. right. It seems like a pretty straightforward proposition that if you work full time, you should be able to make ends meet. Right. I mean, we've sort of heard that theme, I think, before. And I think early in the pandemic, I think people when seeing that essential workers were, were putting themselves at risk, whether they wanted to or not, in some cases because they had to and recognizing that we they were really underpaid and really struggling and um, and yet you know, a lot, again, a lot of that aid was temporary. So now we're sort of back to it's employer dependent, you know, in terms of what the, you know, whether or not people are getting a decent wage that can make their, make ends meet. You know, we are seeing enough, um, you know, another theme that has been 
has been really clear is the the job openings far outnumber the people looking for work. That's been true in Vermont. It's been true across the country, right? So, so there's obviously a lot of demand for employees, which you know we've all seen. I mean, you know, any of the businesses you go to, they they may have reduced hours. They're making adjustments because they're having a hard time finding staff. So I do think that there is potential. You know, that the wages that there are clear, you know, and in some cases, I think we heard this sort of great resignation theme. There's definitely people who are trading up where, you know, they are finding jobs that pay better wages. And so these sort of low end jobs where they're not increasing the wages um, are having a tough, tough time finding people. Um, so hopefully that's good pressure that can bring those wages up to a more reasonable level. But, you know, it also sort of just illustrates the, the complications of, of making it all work. Mm-hmm. You know, I was um, having dinner last night with some friends, um, a pretty big age range, um, sort of folks in their 30s. It was like really folks ranging from like the age of 16 up to 65. And we were all talking about um, like moments that we remember from some point in our life that we're like conscious of as like memories of when the economy worked differently than it does now. And I was sort of, I did not start the conversation. So I was like, you know, fairly thrilled that it was happening being who I am. Um, and so some friends were talking about like living in Boston with Reagan and like seeing the full deregulation of the housing market. And they were actually working in a homeless shelter at that point. So the housing market was deregulated. They immediately saw like thousands more people coming through their door, like really almost immediately. It was the same time that state hospitals were shut down and a bunch of other things, right? So like, that's their marking point of like the, their like clearest memory of the economy breaking basically. Um, and another friend was talking about living, who's much younger, was talking about living on the West coast, but like remembering as a child, her, one of her parents worked as a carpenter and the other one didn't work. And like, they lived in a house and like on the West coast, like in the San Francisco area. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, and like how fully aware they are that that's impossible in that area now. Um, and we're all just sort of like going through it. And I remember like, you know, living in Brattleboro and waiting tables and paying my rent, like without worry, like I would just pay my bills every month out of my income. Um, and so it's like that felt experience that when I think when we talk about it, about the disconnect between wages and costs, um, when we're actually talking to each other about it, I think we move out of this experience of like, oh, that was sort of an individual, that's my individual failing now because I didn't strive hard enough or I've like been unwilling to take that job in the bank or whatever it is um, and moves it more into like, oh, wow, these are systemic forces that we've like seen happen throughout our lifetimes because of political decisions made or political decisions not made. Um, And I think it's an interesting I'm sort of curious how we can translate like the state of working Vermont into like those kinds of conversations that people are having at dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to stop us there simply because we, we need to hear from some of our underwriters, but let's jump in on that after the break. So everyone on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, uh, stay tuned. We shall return. Welcome back to 
the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. You can also find us wherever you find your podcasts, as well as BCTV. Thank you so much to all the work they do getting us on the public access stations around uh, Vermont and even in a few places in other areas of New England. So thanks for tuning in. Hey, Emily. Yes, Olga. Let's remind our listeners of what we need to remind our listeners of. Well, I'd like to remind our listeners that the views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the host and the guests, respectively, and not the stations or platforms that our voices are streamed on. Why, thank you. And if you are just joining us, we are speaking with Stephanie Yu from the Public Assets Institute, and we're talking about the 2022 State of Working Vermont report. And before the break, uh, Emily raised this really great question. Uh, She'd been having dinner with friends and basically asked, when do you remember the economy breaking? Um, Is kind of how it came. uh, No, you didn't ask it. Someone else in your your dinner party asked. but Stephanie, you were you were kind of talking about that and looking at the econ- economy systemically. Um, and you during the break, you made a really great statement about uh, generational differences and why these economic experiences might lead to to that. Could you um, kind of dive back into that for listeners? Yeah, and I'll just say, you know, I just in, to, to answer the question that Emily got asked at the dinner party, I mean, I do think, so I graduated from college in 99, right? So that's how old I am. But the, but it also meant that just before the Great Recession, and so friends that graduated two years later had a very different experience coming into the job market at that time, right? So just like seeing those, I mean, you could see it. And then and then what, what that has meant for their long-term sort of prospects, right? It just changed the whole trajectory of their careers by, by coming out at that time. So that was it. So I, I hear that. And, you know, there's things like, the gasoline crisis in the 70s before my time but you definitely hear like people still talking about it especially in the wake of the energy crisis today so like mm-hmm. you know there are these sort of marking points that people have i think uh in terms of how they think about the economy but the generational differences piece for me i mean it's not just generational it also you know there's racial disparities there are mm-hmm. geographic disparities but 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 it is true that for some people under in certain circumstances in a certain era that if you worked hard, you could make it work. And so it it feel, still feels true to a lot of people that that's that that should be the experience that other people are having. And that if it's not true, then it's, you know, the, the fault of the individual or it's as opposed to recognizing that there are these systemic forces that have really shifted away. You know, I think a lot of people sort of point to those Reagan years as a major shift in sort of economic thinking and and government policy shift. Um, and welfare welfare reform in the 90s as being another sort of gov- major government change that really sort of changed how we approach some of these things. Um, so you know, I think I think, and I think to go back to sort of your original your original comments, Olga, I think people need to be able to follow a narrative arc. I mean, it works for us to be able to sort follow the narrative arc and so if you can kind of identify case of region I think that just helps people kind of understand what's going on. I think unions is another big one. So my stepfather worked for Con Edison 
like as a lineman, um, his whole career, you know, like went into the Navy for just a few years after high school and then like started a job at Con Ed and worked that until he retired and now lives in, and Con Ed, like Con Edison in New York is like one of the biggest utilities in the country and had one of the strongest unions in the country. And he is living a very, very comfortable retirement. And part of that is like stocks that were given to employees that appreciated permanent healthcare, permanent healthcare, like, and like a pass at every single state park in the country, like the wildest, most wonderful benefits that like just a really improved quality of life on like a fundamental level and then some more, you know, spacious levels and how incredibly normalized that is for him because that is what his whole generation of young men growing up in the Bronx, like really regardless of race even, were able to experience in that particular like 10 years of youth like um it's real and it's wild it's wild that like he has this whole cohort of folks that all had that level of comfort straight out of Mm. high school um but I think even in Vermont that wasn't possible because we didn't have those union jobs ever here to that extent Mm. so that's sort of like that's another sort of turning point on my list of turning points as well I you know that's interesting what you what you say Emily because I'm I'm trying to think like through my own family tree and experiences and I think for a lot of the men in my family it was the military mm-hmm. um being drafted was not what they would have preferred to how they would have preferred to enter the military but there was training there was post-education there was the VA benefits afterwards um And for a number of women in my family, it was becoming nurses. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, education and training and, um, huh, interesting. And that's one, you know, it's when we talk about childcare and, you know, women's work and, you know, nursing is one of the rare places that women's work was unionized. And so it's one of the rare places that women's work pays a paid a living wage um, and actually still pays a living wage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I had one. My great grandmother was a invisible mender for the American Woolen Company, and I she had a pretty comfortable life. And I think hers was a union job. So interesting, you know. The so the Woolen Company is now darn tough, right? And interestingly, their starting wages are below fifteen dollars an hour still to this day. Like posted on the website, their starting wages are below fifteen dollars an hour. Hmm. Hmm. Just looked the other day because I wondered if it was still true. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, so leaving the narrative arc for a minute, um, I'd love to talk about Vermont and like, you know, how Vermont's economy is structured because the scale, you know, that we don't have the scale for unions, that we don't have this, you know, the kind of union power we see in other places in the country that's really resurging. Um, but I also think about sort of the power of government and the fact that at least in Wyndham County, like, I think a huge proportion of jobs are funded by either direct state jobs or state grants and contracts and how that, um, I just froze, sorry, how that changes our, um, our experience yeah, of wages. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's true in most states that the that the public sector is tends, both the sort of direct public sector and the, the the sort of subcontracting of the public sector does kind of have pretty important effects on sort of the rest of the economy because it does drive some of those things and tends to have 
unionized, well-negotiated benefits. And sometimes like in, you know, in Vermont, there are certain roles where um, if you're doing the job as a state employee, you, you're, you get certain benefits. And if you're doing it through a subcontractor, you might not have access to those same benefits. Again, true in other states too, but just sort of like, there are sort of these tiers even within the public sector. Um, but I do think it's true that, um, yeah, th that the scale of Vermont makes those things sort of more visible and more kind of obvious and and maybe more influential. I don't know. You know, I think it's probably pretty close to what people experience. And in some places, you know, I worked for the state of Michigan for a number of years. Again, a state with a strong union history, mm -hmm. strong public sector unions, uh, big public sector workforce. Um, but I think a lot of the private sector unions were what sort of drove the wage, kind of the wage expectations throughout the state. So I think I think there is something to that. And I think that public sector jobs should be good jobs, right? Yeah. Like that we that should be the example that should be that um that you should that healthcare should be taken care of. Because some of it too is the fact that um, you know, if people don't have a comfortable retirement and need support for longer. If people don't have healthcare in retirement and they're gonna be relying on the state, you know, there is the, there's a lot of reasons why it makes sense to have strong, strong public sector jobs and, and not I, private sector jobs, but you know, point is lead by example, right? And I, I think I'm talking less about public sector jobs and more about, I think in Vermont, the contracted jobs by the public sector are in actually incredibly low wage um, because they're sort of where we cut corners on particularly Medicaid rates. Mm -hmm. um, and so when we think of folks who are doing homeless services, folks who are doing home health care, folks who are doing home, like, you know, some of those starting wages for master's degree required jobs are like $18 an hour. Yep. Yep. And I think you're also, I mean, I think you also brought up this sort of gendered theme too, which is mm -hmm. how many of these jobs are care jobs, which are been undervalued for a long time because they're women's work. Um, but there is also this disconnect. I think you're right in terms of the designated agencies and who, you know, how the terms for, so if you're a social worker for the state versus if you're a social worker for one of these other subcontracted agencies, there is this real disparity. Mm -hmm. There's also a challenge, you know, we've been thinking too about you know, how does the state use temporary workers? How, you know, there's also even within sort of state workers, there's different ways that it's sort of, you know, there's some, there's some ways in which like universities, for example, that yes. there's a lot less, ten, there's, there's many fewer tenured positions, much more adjuncts relying on sort of how do you do this in a way that, you know, it's sort of the gig economy, but in showing up in different ways, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think what, we're we're touching on here and i'll just be a little more explicit about is that when it comes to being compensated for your work whatever that work is there's that compensation can come in many forms um not just the hourly rate you're making um but it impacts your health care it impacts your retirement um and i i'm guessing stephanie that is a little bit in in the report you talk about um how for most women in Vermont, there's been a slower return to the workplace um, than, than um, for many men. And I'm guessing that one reason that is important is because the longer someone's out of the workforce, regardless of gender, uh, that impacts their social security and a lot of their long-term earnings um, and their retirement. Um, am I seeing that correctly? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. I mean, there's, you know, I think at the beginning of the pandemic, there was sort of this, this, a lot of this talk about the she session and, and over the last couple of years, it's sort of, it has been totally clear. Like it's not, a, it's not a clear cut, you know, because it, there's sort of a mixed bag in terms of the data, right? So, so what we were showing were how many jobs are held by women. So again, this might be a case where more women held second jobs and they had to, you know, ha- they either were able to go to one job because it started paying better or they had to because whatever the reasons are, right? So, but it's certainly clear that there are, there are a lot of differences along gender lines, along, you know, in, in the labor market terms of how things are valued in terms of the jobs in terms of and and I think you're making a good point if if women take time off to have children or there's other reasons why they might be in and out of the workforce or they're caregiving in some cases caregiving for parents or you know other family members or these things and taking time out yeah then there's all these ripple effects on social security on long term tend to be in jobs with fewer benefits and the pensions and all of these things so um yeah we definitely see there being some pretty stark differences. And, you know, I think um, part of what we've wanted to look at is sort of number of hours worked, and that's been tough to get at um, from a gender perspective. But there's some there's some evidence sort of at the national level that there's some real differences there in terms of women cutting back on hours, still being employed, but cutting back on hours because of all these other sort of responsibilities. You know, the sandwich generation of caregiving for both mm-hmm. elders and kids and you know, all of these pieces. So I don't think Vermont's immune to any of that. I'm really curious about, and like, I am straight up personally invested in this question. And so I am going to just like be very clear about that. But this idea of reduced hours um, and the trend towards reduced hours or multiple jobs with reduced hours um, mm-hmm. because of caregiving or like, say you want to serve in the legislature or whatever it is. Um, and how so many of the sort of benefits that are wrapped around the workforce are not available in those cases. And so how does the government adapt to a changing labor force? Um, I don't even want to say compensate. I just want to say adapt. So, you know, public service loan forgiveness is um, much less possible in the case of part-time work, for instance, Mm -hmm. or, um, you know, healthcare or family medical leave or all of those, you know, all of those pieces that we put around the workforce that are dependent on labor are very rarely available for adjunct professors or um, part-time restaurant workers or whatever they are. And if this is the trend that we're going in and we're just going to acknowledge it, um, what do we need to put in place as a state to make sure that folks are still getting their needs met? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think ultimately, you know, our position has been that as much of this as we can divorce from the whim of the employer is what we should be doing, right? So, I mean, certainly, um, you know, healthcare for all available to everyone, and it's not attached to your employer, similar to retirement. I mean, there's been this push on a public retirement plan that hasn't hasn't quite happened in Vermont, but it's been intended to happen for the last five years, right? So the incoming treasurer is really excited about it for whatever that's worth. Well, that's great. And it's been hard to do, right? Part of the reason it didn't get, I don't think it was that the last treasure wasn't interested. I think it was hard to do, right? Yeah. So so I think it's hard to do, but, you know, family leave, sick leave, all these things we're thinking about as more, if we pull it as a state, it makes more sense than having every, like it's luck of your employer Mm -hmm. and it's not subject to the number of hours you're working. It's just something that everybody gets, right? So I do think that ultimately that is the model that a lot of other places have that makes a lot of sense. And yet, um, 
it seems really tough to get there. So what do we do in the meantime? Right. I, I think, you know, what do we do in the meantime? And I think what you're what maybe what you're suggesting is is recognizing that part-time work is real work. Part-time work is, you know, there's a whole degree of part-time work that's professional, that's whatever. So what is the sort of baseline guarantee of benefits that goes along with however many hours you work and how, and you know, how do we make that reasonable? Yeah. And that your, your question, Emily makes me go to um, uh, another thing. I think Stephanie, you and I have talked about in the past, but I'm fascinated with this idea of how many people are working multiple jobs uh, for a variety of reasons and how I'm not sure that we really track that. And so I wonder, um, I know you may not have the, the data, Stephanie, but I'm curious if we were to really kind of track labor trends or track wages based on checking that people have more than one job, what do you think would change? What do you, any thoughts on what we might see differently or what we would have to do to actually have that data? So, so there is some tracking of the multiple jobs, but it's pretty limited. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting in the sense, so it's always, it's reported. Um, so it's, it's jobs, you know, it's sort of jobs held. So if you're, if you have a job and you're doing, and you have a small business on the side, that you do part-time or something like that. That's not going to show up as multiple jobs. I think there's a fair amount of that in, in Vermont, like sort of the side hustle of whatever it is that you're going to do, right? But it doesn't count as a job or it's a gig thing and it doesn't count. It's not going to show up in the job numbers mm-hmm. because I haven't looked in a, I haven't looked in at least a year at the multiple job holdings. There is some tracking of it, but they're pretty inadequate and incomplete data, I think. Um, but what's interesting is that it hasn't changed much. Like for as long as they've been tracking it, it's held pretty steady. Um, but it's also, but you also can't tell like if one person is holding three jobs or two people are holding two jobs or, you know, you can't always tell sort of how it all adds up. Um, so, so there, so there are some of those data. I think, I think we could do a better job tracking um, a lot of this stuff. I think a lot of it does come back to what is good data collection. You know, our department of labor does a pretty good job. Some of it's happening at the federal level, but the state, Department of Labor has the ability to ask the feds to to collect more more information. And I think we could be doing more of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but but and then the hours worked data also can be can be incomplete. So it doesn't always give us a good picture of what's going on in terms of can you really see sort of this decline? And a lot of it is not broken out by demographic. Mm-hmm. So can we see it by gender? Can we see it by race? Can we see it by income level? Which would obviously be very telling, right? Like that gives you a lot of information. But from a, I think your original question was from a benefits perspective, what do we do about that, right? Like if you're combined working 40 hours a week, shouldn't you qualify for any of these things? You know, again, I, I think the bottom line is it shouldn't be tied to your employer. And, and I think what that doesn't get to too, is this unpaid work challenge, right? The the, The unpaid caregiving part, that is a huge part of our economy that is critical to our economy functioning and yet does not get sort of valued in any official way, right? right? So, you know, I'd love it if Emily, I'd love to hear if Emily has has any more thoughts on that piece. Um, sure you've well, thought about I, it. <laughs> um, no surprises that I've thought about it. And I don't think any of my thoughts on it are particular surprises to anyone who's ever listened to the show before um, or to you, Steph. But 
I absolutely, you know, I think the more we can move benefits that have sort of traditionally been tied to employment um, into the public sector, I think both it will help us adjust to the increase in gig economy and sort of create parity between the various ways that people make a living. Mm -hmm. But also, again, the scale of our businesses being so small in Vermont makes a lot of those things that might actually work in other parts of the country really, really hard here. And so I don't blame a lot of the employers here that they don't offer this wide range of benefits. It's really hard to do at a small scale, not just like you need real HR capacity in order to just even administer something like that. And you need like long-term planning and the financial resources and all of that. It's more expensive to do at a smaller scale. My internet's a little bit flickery, so I just want to apologize to anyone who's watching us on video. I think probably it's not going to be the best quality video. Um, So I think having the state, you know, a publicly administered universal family medical leave program that includes care for self, care for loved ones, leave for, you know, caregiving purposes, I think that's really essential. Um, I think separating healthcare and retirement from individual employers matters. I think things like public service loan forgiveness, um, you know, a lot of that's at the federal level, but the state's starting to do more of it and it needs to be separated from employer. And I'm really nervous that there's a new push in the midst of the housing crisis to have employer provided housing. And that I feel incredibly nervous about. And we're at a point in the housing crisis where it's sort of like any housing, anytime is better than no housing. But I think that's a really... Um, it's a really nerve wracking trend for me um, because it's tying yet another benefit um, or yet another like essential human need to the employer. Um, So that's some of what I think we need to be doing about it. I also think that there's more we could do to be strengthening labor laws related to short, shorter, um, more part-time work. So a lot of service jobs have been sort of increasingly managed via AI. Um, And so, you know, on-demand scheduling, we could just say it's not allowed. Um, It's like not, you know, um, so an end to on-demand scheduling, having like, you know, both reliable and flexible work schedules for people who are engaging in caregiving. All of that is stuff that is sort of a necessary component of good labor laws. And I think it's another place that sort of like Vermont hasn't quite caught up with the future that's happened everywhere else. Mm -hmm. I'm always amazed at how different parts of our, our community, our lives, however you want to put it, are not in alignment. For example, a school day runs from what, (laughs) 7am to three something uh, depending on whether you're in high school or elementary, and yet work days go from, say, nine to five. Yeah. Um, th- like simple things like that that just aren't in alignment. And the bus schedule for, you know, public transit runs from like 9.30 to 2.45 or something, right. you know. Right. And it's interesting, you know, like when I think about some of the employers in the community that are hiring and hiring and hiring for, you know, 10-hour shifts, like, what if you offered five-hour shifts that, like, actually, like, I wonder what would happen, you know? I wonder what would happen if you, like, posted your wages and your hours publicly so that people would know what they were getting themselves into. And they might go, oh, that actually works for my weird life, you know? Because everyone feels like their situation is so unique and so 
And given the power difference between employers and employees on, you know, the application process, people are really scared to ask those questions. Yeah, and I, I think that the scheduling point is a really good one, too, because it's not just it's what's guaranteed. I mean, and this is a good time in terms of our restaurant and hospitality sectors. I mean, we've certainly all seen restaurants who have stayed with takeout only or only open three days a week or only open for dinner or have changed that up. And and part of that, you know, I mean, you waited tables, I waited tables through college and grad school and bartended and all that stuff. And it's like you never knew when you were going to get called off. And when you were relying on that money for your bills and they could just send you home in the middle of a shift if it wasn't. And so you never really knew what your income was going to be. And it's really tough. And if that was your only source of income and you were trying to provide for a family on that, it's it's tough. So I'm actually waiting tables now tonight. Um, and one, you know, in some ways, the particular shape of the economy has been really helpful because um you know, I got was asked if I could come in tonight. Usually I work Saturday nights, but we're going to only Saturday nights. We're going to be closed this Saturday night because it's Christmas Eve, I think. Um, and and so I said I would cover tonight. And I was like, I actually can't come in until five because of other stuff. And, you know, he was like, sure. I have never worked in a restaurant where that would have been okay. So mm-hmm. like in some ways, you know, the workforce shortage has increased sort of like negotiation capacity. And there's a massive ice storm coming and we're going to be open. I don't think I'm going to make any money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like, yep. why are, you know, yep. and there is, there's like no guaranteed wage attached to any of it. It's wild. It's like incredibly unreliable source of labor. So even in the face of like this increased negotiating power um, for employees, it's still like, you know, really deep inequities in what's happening. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I'm getting rid of the minimum wage. What? That? Time to get rid of the tipped minimum wage. It is indeed in time. Time to get rid of the tipped minimum wage, yes. Um, unfortunately, we are just about out of time, Stephanie. I know we have covered a lot of ground. What do you think is important to leave listeners with right now um, as we go into the new year? I, You know, I think an optimistic note would be nice in terms of what's possible. I mean, we really saw what's possible. And I think that all of the stuff is possible at the state level. It's obviously great when there's federal support for any of these things, but we can do a whole lot of it as a state. And I, and, and so I have, I have hope that this is a good time, that there's a conversation, like that there's an openness to that conversation that there wasn't pre-pandemic. So I'm, I'm hopeful. Thank you. How about you, Emily? Any thoughts for listeners as we say goodbye to 2022? Oh gosh. Um, I'm actually completely in alignment with Steph here. I still feel that we have learned so many lessons in the last two years and we can carry them into the future. We understand what government can do when it works well. And I think we're really, we've moved out of the crisis enough to some degree that I think we can stop being reactive and be proactive to like really incorporate those lessons into our public service. Thank you, thank you. I also just want to express some incredible gratitude for Steph, for your partnership through, you know, a few wild years Mm -hmm. and Olga, this show, we've been doing this. We're about to start our fifth year. Yeah, oh my gosh. Happy hour. And so having this time to reflect with you every single week about what is happening in Vermont politics, what's happening in the Vermont economy has been a tremendous source of learning for me. And so thank you for that. Thank you. Well, I I appreciate that um so much, Emily. 
And I think one thing I keep appreciating about this show, uh, both you and and all our guests who have, have come on the show, is just people's willingness to show up mm-hmm. and have these conversations. And for folks who haven't been on the show, you know, just for context, we often say to the folks we invite, you know, you're the expert, so we want to hear from you. We don't like sit down and say, well, they're going to talk about this question or this question. We kind of have a rough framework and then we just dive in and people's willingness to do that. um, I just have so much appreciation for. And I think it's one reason we tend to have really good conversations. Um, So thank you, Emily. Thank you, Steph, for seeing out 2022 with us. Um, What I have been sitting with is maybe not as... um, optimistic mainly in my life I've been dealing with a lot of grief uh but it's made me think of these last two years and sort of that collective upheaval grief that can come from that uh regardless of the upheaval and um I guess I have in an odd way a little gratitude for that too because it grief has made me look at my life so differently Um, and at problems so differently. And I hope, given the collective grief that many of us have been going through since the pandemic, um, I guess that is my hope too of, of, um, you know, like you said, Emily, the the quote of maybe this is not darkness, but this is the birth of death, but this is the birth canal. Um, So that is my hope going into 2023. So thank you, everybody. Many happy blessings for 2023, and we will see you all in the new year. Bye.